You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Cyber CEOs Decoded, where we speak with CEOs from established security giants to up and coming disruptors, getting the inside track on what makes a cybersecurity company tick. I'm your host, Mark Fanzadeloff, the CEO of Devo. And today we have a very special episode to close out an intense first season of Cyber CEOs Decoded. And my guest is Amanda Renteria. She is the CEO of Code for America. While not exactly a cyber CEO, although I think she can she can fake one if, if needed, I thought Amanda today could shed light on a couple of topics. First of all, her journey, but then a couple of topics we as cyber CEOs are striving to deal with and are dealing with, which is one, how do you attract a diverse and underrepresented group of talent into your company? And two is how do you protect everyone from cyber attacks, not just those who have the dough to spend on that protection? And also, Amanda is a super interesting person to get to know. So I think you'll all agree on that by the end of this podcast. So we're going to cover her path to becoming a CEO, her leadership style, and the growth that Code for America has experienced since she took over, and how the underrepresented and vulnerable groups that they serve are at high risk for attacks and scams, and what we can learn from Code for America for recruiting diverse talent, and why that's critical to ensuring a wide range of perspectives are accounted for when you're tackling tough issues. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is fantastic. I mean, it's not the same. It's not the same as being on a basketball court, but you know, like it's been a while, so this is pretty good. It's been a while since you and I played hoops together, and uh, for for those following at home, that was uh, when I was living in D.C. and you were living in D.C. And uh, Amanda is an awesome point guard. And I'm just a, the big guy, right? And I have to ask you something about that because I remember one time in that church that we played on Friday mornings at like 5.45 in the morning, you passed me the ball. <laughs> I took a hook shot and missed. And you said to me, don't take hook shots. They're a waste of time. Now, I've always wanted to ask, is that, <laughs> is that a general policy or is that just an indictment of my hook shot? Um, it's not a general policy, but it's a little bit of throughout my life coaching like nine-year-old boys and all they want to do is like hook shots, right? And it always bounces out. And, um, so it was a little bit of an instinct of my, of, uh, coaching back in the past, but also now with my kids when I was coaching when they were younger, for some reason, it always reminds me of people who like are hanging around the basketball court trying to do hook shots. And unless it goes in 90% of the time. It's like an instinct to say, what are you doing? You could have squared up, taken a proper shot and gotten those two points. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm jealous. I'm not that tall. I'm not that close. And if I was that close and tall, I wouldn't try a risky shot. It was always awesome to play basketball with you. Um, we played in a, a uh, very mixed uh, group. And uh, I always loved when a new person showed up and underestimated what you did. You'd either hit a three over them or drive past them. And that was a, that was a joy. And I was always happy when you were on my team when that happened. All right. So let's get into this. I mean, I'm going to try and do a little bit of, of your early career. And then I want you to take us on the path here because you've just a fascinating career and you guys can't see Amanda, but you can look her up. But Amanda is the first uh, Mexican-American woman from a small town to be accepted to Stanford University where you did, you were on the basketball team there. Uh, earned a, a BA in economics and political science with honors. Uh, after undergrad, you spent four years in the private sector in Los Angeles as an investment analyst. So you honed your your skills there. 
You went to a small school near me called Harvard Business School, and you focused on public <laughs> nonprofit management. Um, and then after graduation, you had the most fascinating career uh, in the public sector. Uh, when I met you, you were working for, I believe, for Senator Feinstein when, uh, when I met you. Am I when you first met me, yeah, it might have been Senator Feinstein. But you also worked for the city of San Jose, a special consultant, had a lot of experiences. So walk us through, you got out of HBS, Harvard Business School. Today, our Code for America running this, we're, we're going to spend some time about in a few minutes, but give us the, the middle of that sandwich. You know, uh, you get out of Harvard and, and what do you go and do and, and what's that path? Yeah. So it was interesting because I went to Harvard Business School, not exactly knowing where my path was going to go, but before I had worked at Goldman Sachs and I'd also um, went home to teach and coach in my hometown. And so I was trying to figure out what's the in-between of that, right? How do you have the intensity and all of that? Um, and at the same time, this mission, this calling for a public service mission. And so that's why I went to the city of San Jose and everyone thought I was crazy when I graduated, um, but I really got to see some of the inner workings. And then from city of San Jose, I ended up um, getting on the Hill, working for Feinstein, working for um, Senator Stabenow as her chief of staff during a really interesting time where the Affordable Care Act passed, where we had a restructuring of the auto industry, Wall Street reform. So much happened during that period of time in different areas of work, but that all kind of touched Michigan and the committees we were on, like the finance committee that helped write the Affordable Care Act. And so it was an incredible time to be there. But what I also learned is that we needed more perspectives in the room, whether that was me at eight months pregnant, trying to push the Affordable Care Act to have maternity care. I mean, literally in the back, right? And you kind of look around and you're like, there's not enough sort of folks, you know, even going through this journey to understand that piece and how can we, um, how can I help in it? Or when we were talking about how um, are we going to work with immigrant communities or permanent legal residents, the lived experience in that room, um, even though it was my own, I recognized how it was missing. And so it was a real rude awakening. I mean, it was kind of like our basketball team, right? We had a lot of different skills and I think that's why we were good. I mean, I'm a little bit of a political junkie and I could go on and on about these topics, which, which, uh, which, would be bad in two ways. One, probably off topic. And two, I'm, I'm not good enough to actually ask you great questions. But you must have been fascinated by the recent speaker election. You must have been glued to C-SPAN and some of the video there. I mean, that, that was unusual, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it was all unusual. Um, and it's, it was very different than when I was there and we were working through the actual like formal processes and structures. And at the same time, um, what I recognize is it was sort of not uh, not well known enough, right? It wasn't a public discourse. And I always used to say, God, it would be better if we had more engagement and involvement. I might not, uh, you know, some engagement and good, healthy yeah. engagement is what I Careful what you wish for, right? Yeah, I know exactly. But um, it did lead me to, to recognize that how can I help actually expand the perspectives of who is at the table, who's writing laws, who's thinking about these things. I mean, I still remember the testimony where folks said the Internet was a, you know, bunch of tubes. And when I looked at my colleagues who are younger and my age, you know, we're like, what is going on? Like, uh, but anyway, that led me to really explore the politics side. So both running for Congress, but then also um, being asked to be Hillary's national political director uh, in wow. 2016. Yeah. So, um, so yes, yeah, so that was the politics well, side. I, of I have to ask. So Hillary, what was it like working with Hillary? What's, what's that really like? Yeah. Um, it was a uh, incredible, intense, competitive, 
just in general, you know, environment in the world to try and win a presidential election. So that is just one of the most life unusual things. You don't know what day, what time it is. I was in 30 different states on planes. We never knew what time. You really have to like, you are in this state at this time when you get off the private plane to go like shepherd into the hotel and then wake up the next morning. But I'll say she's incredibly smart and um, just really, um, when you think of an executive and you think of an executive with just a depth of experience um, who wants to lean into a world that looks different, particularly for women, um, it was eye-opening. It was eye-opening in a lot of ways. One, the seriousness by which she brought, because she was at the State Department, she understood this international global world at a time when we weren't having a discussion about Russia and Ukraine, right? She understood what was at stake when it came to women. And like, so in some ways I felt like being on that campaign, I was getting an early view with like a extremely smart professor who could see, you know, the edges of what we live in today. Um, And we were trying to navigate it. Um, She is incredible to work for from a personal standpoint, like asking me how my kids are, but also, hey, Amanda, like you haven't seen your kids in a while. And she was actually helping me with balance, but to also a high standard of what do, you know, what kind of relationships are we having in the political environment? How are we engaging them? How are we making sure people feel a part of this campaign as the political director? Those are the best bosses, right? I mean, you said like three things, you know, encouraging, you know, balance, interested in in you as a person, and then, uh, still demanding excellence, right? And I think sometimes you have a boss that does one or the other, but uh, all three, it's great. And then the last thing is just extremely curious. You know, when you run a campaign, you are on the front edge of public discourse, right? And of outreach and different constituency groups that you may never have interacted with. And I appreciated how much I saw her not just be curious, but enjoy being in the curiosity, getting to know it. So I try and keep that, even as a leader now, how important that is, particularly in a tech environment where everything is changing. Yeah, that's crazy. I agree with that. Um, After that, you went back to California? Yeah, I did. Um, Attorney General Becerra, he moved out to California and asked if I would be his chief of operations. And so I spent um, a year really helping get him and the team up and running. What does it mean? Um, Got to know a lot more about not just tech, but uh, how we how we deal with justice today. And so it was great. All of that, though, after the Hillary campaign, working in local government, what I started to realize is, you know, if we want our institutions and democracy to work, um, we have to start thinking about what are the tools we need today? What are the people we need today? Who are the organizations that are actually bringing back some trust in institutions and how things just work, right? Because after the Hillary campaign, for me, it felt like a lot of things were broken and they were going to break even more. So I started to think, where are, in some ways, I got a preview to the movie today that I never wanted to see, right? And um, when I started to look at what are the institutions and the industries that are actually moving things forward, for better and for worse, it was technology. And when I looked at places I could go with a clear mission statement, Code for America spoke to me because it was on the front lines of trying to figure out how government services actually reach people and with a focus on people who are often left out. Um, The very same folks that felt really disconnected from the political environment. Let's go there next here with Code for America. Um, Since it's technology, we can talk about elevator pitch, right? What's the elevator pitch? What does Code for America do exactly? Tell our audience about that. 
the easy one is we partner with government um, to help them improve to reach people so that people can access government benefits. I mean, it's it's a pretty simple idea, right? Like maybe we use human-centered technology and how we distribute food assistance, right? Or tax benefits in a real way, as opposed to, you know, the big, huge tax form you have to fill out. How can we simplify that in the phone with a couple of steps, particularly for people for low-income folks or people who've never even filed before. Those kinds of things are the front edge. And we decided to work on programs that had the biggest gaps of uh, access or intake. So we know we can use our data and we know what programs like um, earned income tax credit, which help particularly help low-income communities, we know folks are not being reached um, or worse, they're being reached, but being reached with fraud or something else, right? And so these, these are vulnerable communities that we know um, technology can help if we can be that bridge. So like technology to demarginalize certain groups, right? To bring them back in. Right. Even the way I often talk, because everyone's like, gosh, but it's so not human to use technology to reach people. And what I often say is if you go to a social services office and have to walk through a metal detector, that to me is not human, right? But we can make uh, we can make a connection on a mobile phone that does feel right. Yeah, that's amazing. So um, maybe I think it'd be interesting to talk about, you, you kind of mentioned one, but give us just a sense of like uh, the type of projects you guys work on. Then I want to talk about you guys have grown a lot and why you grew so much, but give us first a sense of like a project that you, that you guys would have done. Yeah. So one of our first was what's called Get Cal Fresh here in California, which is the food assistance program. And it used to be paper form in all of our different counties. And we created an intake app where people, it's in multiple language, Spanish, Mandarin, um, really for the community. And what we did is we sat with people who were applying. We walked with them into the social services office. We sat with caseworkers and we just redesigned the entire thing. Um, and now we're like 80% of everything that comes through. And what we do then is we actually now have the data where we see, listen, you're getting huge inflows here. We, When the pandemic hit, we could see immediately um, the spike in applications called the governor's office, right? And said, here is what is coming at you at the beginning of the pandemic. You need to be ready for it. So it's a little bit of not just making the system better, but really making sure we're bridging it. Because our belief is government should do this. It shouldn't be us. We want to be out of business. Uh, but some of the other things we do is the child when the child tax credit came out, we uh, built the mobile app in Spanish and English for the White House and Treasury, launched with them. Um, took them through an iterative process, which is very different for government, right? They were like, have it ready. And we're like, it's a journey. We're going to test pilot. We're going to iterate. Didn't use the word agile, did you? <laughs> no, no, we did not. That's why okay. I just said iterate. That has been a banned word. Um, <laughs> although I'm worried about banned words right now. Um, and then the last one is um, criminal justice. So cannabis laws passed in the state of California. Why is it that you still have to go to court petition to get rid of something on your background check that is legal, right? So um, so those are the spaces we're in. We often get asked to do a ton of other things because there's so much work we can do. And um, we're always looking to do that, but we want to make sure we deliver on some of these major goals we have. If we could change safety net, right, to just be a little more human-centered, um, how important that is as we think about the environment and the much more involving environment that we're going into. And you guys have grown from 77 to 200 employees. Let's start off with why. What I mean, for me, you know, Devo, we're growing because I'm a software company. We sell more software. People buy more. I have to hire more people to help, right? But what, what drives your growth? 
Yeah. So when I started, um, one of the biggest challenges for Code for America, and it was right when the pandemic hit, um, but one of the biggest challenges for us was convincing government that you had to deliver services digitally. And so that was like a huge hump for our work. People would be like, ah, it's a nice to do, but not a have to do, right? Like people can still come in. Well, pandemic hits and all of a sudden it's the only way, right? And so the big, I mean, everything from when I started in the first two weeks, I got a call saying, is there any way we can help, you know, a dozen states across the country get um, kids who are on school lunch programs, who are eligible for school lunch program? Is there any way we can figure out a way to get them like, money, right? Resources so they can go buy groceries. And so we immediately jumped in working with 12 states, trying to figure out how are we going to do this digitally? What's wrong with the data? How do we clean up the data? Um, how do we then uh, make sure it gets to the people it needs? To, and on the back end, who do we work with so that it's so that people could use those resources when they get them, right? Is it a check? Is it a card? All those kinds of things. And so that was the story though of all of our different programs. People started to wonder about food assistance, right? Like we've heard from a lot of food banks, like, listen, we can only hold so much. And we know families aren't coming in because they're scared. Um, can you help? Um, and then child tax credit happened. And so what it did is a lot of philanthropy came to us and said, all right, I know you're doing pilots. Ah, can you just like, you know, quickly turn those over into volume? <laughs> and I think that really changed the shape of like what we do, how people saw our work. And so we went from 77 to now we're um, moving in into 200. Amazing. A couple more questions for you. So just leadership style. How would you describe your leadership style? What are your core things that you do? Well, it's funny. You're just coming off of like a week of having my uh, executive team together in person, in the same room, but for the first time ever in two and a half years, largely because we were built in crisis mode. Right. And so in some ways we've gotten really good at reactionary, but um, it's very much like basketball team. <laughs> right. I mean, I do see it very much as a coach to a team, largely because I call Code for America. We're a little bit nonprofit. We're a little bit technology company and we're a little bit government. So the truth is no one on my executive team could actually on the one hand, we're a team because not everyone's a good three point shot. Right. Not everyone's a good big man. And so that's my style is it's much more of a coaching, how are we going to do this kind of style together? Because it's also modeling for our teams that are very, very, very cross-functional. But I mean, I got to say it, we have fun while we do this and it's hard stuff. But we as a team, I would say I'm pretty based on we've got the play, go run. So, um, hey, one area that, that you do run into is the underrepresented and, and vulnerable elements of our population. Um, they're getting attacked as much or more than, as anybody else, right? Tell us a little bit about your perspective there. So we read a lot about this um, because we worry so much about the clients we have. Um, and what I'll say about it is one of the biggest, um, the hardest barriers is that people don't trust our system. Um, that's a lot of reason why low-income folks, communities that have been left out, don't actually apply for government benefits. So it's key top of mind because the last thing we need is for them not to trust us, but the last thing we need is for some sort of fraud to happen. And or we have a deep sense of responsibility to um, help our clients understand fraud and the difference between what they see from us and what they see from others. As an example, um, we have learned that um, Spanish-speaking clients want more formal language. Even like the style and tone yeah. of the language um, as you go back and forth made it feel it was real, but it also helped against um, some of the attacks that you get in Spanish, 
where it's very pithy. But we look at that because of how important it is. As a somebody who's been in cybersecurity for 25 years and somewhat of a technology guy by now in my life, there's rarely a... Uh, uh, a session of Congress on these topics, technology and cybersecurity, that, that you tune into that make really any sense, unless they, they happen to have brought in somebody that's deeply technical. And then the questions that that person's being asked are often nonsensical. It's gotten a little better lately, but man, yeah, the, the naivete on these topics is is scary. Yeah, and it's hard for us because it's also um, a balance, right? Um, because on the one hand, you know, if you restrict ID verification, to the things you know for a lot of low-income folks, right? They might not have a house or, you know, they certainly don't have a mortgage. They don't have some of these, you know, the bill is sometimes not in their name, right? It's a family name or it's a landlord name. And so some of these things are really hard, which is how do you, you know, micro-target a way to get folks in without exposing, you know, without opening things up too much, it's the old conundrum between access and security. And often there's a trade-off between these two. You, you button down the hatches on security and suddenly you're shutting down access, which frankly is some of the debate you see on the election law stuff, not to get into that one. But, um, you know, you want everyone to have access, but you don't want there to be security and fraud issues. So the last area I wanted to just chat about is, is hiring for diverse talent. This is a huge goal at, at my company, Devo. We've made huge strides over the last few years, getting to almost uh, over 30% of our uh, employees, uh, from, I think 10 to 30% have gone from diverse, especially females. So it's been, been a nice journey for us to go. But you've, by definition, been really a forerunner in hiring for diversity uh, at Code for America. What are some tips for cyber CEOs or any managers in the cyber space and how to bring diverse talent into the workforce? Um, be intentional. For us, we have, from the very beginning, our executive team is uh, majority women and people of color. We look at metrics all the time. So every single, all staff, right, we have our metrics of how are things looking. And over the course of time, we've really moved the needle. But I'll also say, um, we talk a lot about lived experience. And the communities we're trying to reach, that mission orientation really speaks to, I, I love when I do my coffees, right? People are like, Either this is the lived experience I have, or I was connected to it in this way. I worked, I worked on the front lines. And we tell those stories um, so that not only that you're comfortable um, coming into Code for America, and we're still always working on that, but that you see yourself in not only our mission, but what it could be for someone else and it be better than your experience. That has been really pretty fantastic. We have apprenticeship programs and fellows and built some uh, learning communities just almost organically so that we're bringing in a pipeline. <laughs> we try and upskill people on the tech side. We put them in places where their lived experience can really benefit the way we are designing a program, and we work it through. And it's what we're teaching government to do too. So when they bring in folks, like asking those questions early on, and I think just us talking about it, uh, that this is a mission, it's an OKR, it's the way we think about it. Um, and as I said before, like, if you don't have a good three point shot, right? Like your team, it, it hurts the team, right? If you don't have a big man, um, and our work is so spread in these different areas that we need that kind of, um, yeah, we just need that kind of involvement. That's super advice. I have to say watching the NBA nowadays, I'm not so sure big men are even needed anymore. It seems to be all three pointers, but I, I, I get the theory. Um, <laughs> So, Amanda, I'm going to close it out there. Thank you so much for spending time on your career and your time. So maybe one final question. Um, 
10 years from now, where do we find Amanda? What's that look like? Oh Come on. God. That's a hard one, right? Come on, Mark. On the basketball court. This is so easy. (laughs) Listen, I want our democratic institutions to work. And wherever I can find that, um, I want to be there. And so um, when I think about technology, when I think about what you're doing, it's going to be somewhere in that space. Right? And I think it's good for all of our kids to make sure we have healthy institutions. Super. I think that's a great note to close things out on. Amanda, thank you so much for joining uh, Cyber CEOs Decoded. And thanks to our audience for listening. And that's the end of this season. So uh, wait for season two to open up. Appreciate everyone listening. Amanda, awesome to see you again. Take care. Great to see you. Take care.